Thanks everyone for sticking around. I don't know about you, but I always know that when I get a consult that says the patient has um, renal or hepatic dysfunction, it's gonna be a good time. Um, part of this presentation, I think, was a selfish fix for myself, because I sometimes, you know, there's certain things you're like, ah, I have to look that up again. And now, I have one place, and I can just reference myself. So, <laughs> I've already, I've already pulled this out presentation out a couple times just to um, look at a group of medications. Um, so neither of us have any financial disclosures. We just did want to say that our presentation here is our um, clinical and personal opinions and doesn't necessarily represent the views and opinions of the U.S. government or the Department of Veterans Affairs. Our learning objectives, we want to talk about pharmacokinetic changes that occur with renal and hepatic dysfunction, talk about specific recommendations for non-opioid and opioid medications, and talk about um, a patient case and what our options are. Um, so here are some wonderful pictures I found on the internet. Um, I like Hello Kidney a lot. Um, on the left-hand side, I like um, Kidney Rock and Nicole Kidney there. I thought that was pretty funny. Got to have a little fun. It is the end of the day. So to start with the patient case, we have a 55-year-old female with diabetic peripheral neuropathy and chronic kidney disease, stage 3, with a creatinine clearance of 45. She is on gabapentin 600 milligrams twice a day, venlafaxine long-acting 112.5 milligrams daily. She's done some non-pharmacological approaches, um, but currently her pain ha had been controlled for a while. Um, but now it's not as well controlled and it's impacting her ability to work full-time as a secretary and babysit her grandkids. Um, she tried tramadol but had side effects of nausea and vomiting and a previous trial of nortriptyline led to intolerable dry mouth. The PCP is considering initiation of opioids and not, wants to know what the best option is for this patient's neuropathic pain given her CKD. She had an EKG in the last three months which showed a QTC interval of 465 and all of her opioid risk mitigation stuff checks out. So let's talk a little bit about medications and chronic kidney disease. So pain is very common in patients with chronic kidney disease. Here I have figures looking at hemodialysis and end-stage renal disease. You can see that almost everyone has um, some sort of pain um, going on can be divided into pain related to dialysis itself in end-stage renal disease or non-dialysis related. You can see that more patients have the non-dialysis related type pains. Things related to dialysis that could occur, muscle cramps, headaches, um, itching, um, trying to access the AV fistula, um, getting injections. Um, those all can occur. And then non-dialysis related pain. So musculoskeletal things. One thing I wanted to point out was renal osteal dystrophy, and then they can have peripheral neuropathy as well. So what do we need to think about in terms of medications in someone with chronic kidney disease? Well, first we want to, want to think about its metabolic pathway. So does the medication get metabolized? Where does it get metabolized? What does it get metabolized to? Does it get metabolized to an active metabolite, an inactive metabolite? How are those eliminated? Is that primarily eliminated through the kidney and the urine, or is that eliminated in another route? And then another thing to consider is protein binding. So if there's less protein available, that means less 
medication potential binding to those proteins and a potential increase in the free amounts of medications potentially um, increasing the risk for side effects. Now in dialysis, there are several factors to look at that can give you an idea of how likely a medication is to be dialyzed. The first one is molecular weight. So the higher the molecular weight, the less likely it's gonna be able to be dialyzed. The other one is plasma protein binding. If it is highly protein bound, the less likely it is to be removed. If there's a high volume of distribution, that's another thing that would limit the ability of something to be dialyzed. And then water solubility. If it is highly water soluble, the more likely it is to be removed. And the other thing to consider is if something is highly extracted through the dialysis process, there is a potential for withdrawal. A lot of you are probably familiar with the WHO pain ladder. You'll notice here we're focusing on medications. We're pharmacists in here to talk about medications today. But I did want to remind us all that, of course, we want to be using self-management techniques and non-pharmacological approaches throughout. And this ladder is specifically adapted for those who have chronic kidney disease. So our step one, you'll notice that NSAIDs are missing. And acetaminophen would be the preferred. Step two, um, we still have our hydrocodone, oxycodone, tramadol. And then step three, um, you can see buprenorphine, fentanyl, hydromorphone, methadone, and oxycodone. Here is another good table. Um, I have in kind of my desk side quick references, um, kind of our red, green, and yellow of medications to be used or not used in patients with chronic kidney disease. Again, things that are recommended would be acetaminophen, buprenorphine, fentanyl, gabapentinoids, hydromorphone with the exceptions of stage four and five CKD, or if dialysis is interrupted or stopped. And then methadone, caution, so just um, close following, low dose initiation um, with hydrocodone, oxycodone, and there's some dose adjustments with tramadol. And things to be avoided, codeine, meperidine, morphine, NSAIDs, um, and duloxetine, especially um, when it comes to end-stage renal disease. So, good table to have handy. We now wanted to talk a little bit more specifically about the different groups of medications. So acetaminophen, the terminal elimination phase can be extended in renal dysfunction. There is a recommended adjustment in the dosing interval. When patients have creatinine clearance of less than 10 or on hemodialysis, they recommend a Q8 dosing interval rather than Q6. Interestingly, acetaminophen is 66% dialyzable, but there is no recommended supplemental doses. There is a possibility of kidney toxicity in an acute overdoses situation, but that's fairly uncommon, and that would be acute tubular necrosis. Um, but that typically reverses with discontinuation and is more common if glutathione is depleted, and we'll talk more about that later when we get to the liver section. But essentially, it's the non-opioid drug of choice in patients with chronic kidney disease. Moving on to NSAIDs, those were in the bad category, the red category, um, and that's because of their potential for leading to acute kidney injury with the inhibition of prostaglandin synthesis in the afferent tubular, tu tubule, um, and that reduces renal blood flow and glomerular filtration. 
maybe one day I won't have to look up and remember afferent versus efferent. I just know that ones do one side and the other ones do the other, and I always have to look it up. But ACE inhibitors can potentially increase risk because they work on the efferent side, and then we, get, we block both sides and things are bad. Other risk factors include congestive heart failure, but I don't know about you, we shouldn't be putting patients on NSAIDs if they have congestive heart failure. Um, same with cirrhosis or hypertension. NSAIDs are probably not a good option. Or bleeding, probably shouldn't be on an NSAID. Um, but the other factors, um, age, increased age, higher risk, and then specifically related to the medication, higher doses, longer duration of use, and a longer half-life. This is generally reversible with discontinuation. There are some other kidney problems that can occur with NSAIDs, um, sodium and potassium retention, acute interstitial nephritis, or analgesic nephropathy. So what are some tips here? Generally, I avoid long-term chronic use of NSAIDs in patients who have a GFR less than 60. And it's definitely a no-go if they have a GFR less than 30. We want to be careful about drug-drug interactions that can potentially worsen the risk for um, acute kidney injury like lithium, ACE inhibitors, ARBs, calcineurin inhibitors. We want to make sure that we're not putting people on NSAIDs. So what, what can we do? Um, one, th one consideration is topical medications. I can call, recall a recent patient that I was working with. Um, she was on high doses of ibuprofen. Her primary care provider tried reducing her dose of ibuprofen because she was noticing some changes in her kidney function um, and was concerned that the NSAIDs were playing a role. Well, the lower doses didn't work, and she was having significant impact on her function. Um, I suggested, okay, let's try something different. Um, we tried topicals. She didn't get um, significant relief with that. We tried acetaminophen again. Um, she's like, this is not anywhere near where I was um, with the ibuprofen. So we ended up, I talked with the provider and suggested maybe we consider a trial of Selendac or salicylate because there may be potential, less potential renal hemodynamic changes with those medications because they're weaker effects on prostaglandins. Um, so to be continued, I haven't followed up with her yet to see um, her labs or um, how well her pain and arthritis is controlled um, using one of those medications. Another thing to think about is limiting dose and duration. And then you can also consider a short-acting NSAID um, in, preference over a long-acting NSAID. Moving on to skeletal muscle relaxants. I always have to give my disclaimer about chronic use of skeletal muscle relaxants. Um, there's limited evidence to use um, muscle relaxants to target um, spasms long-term, um, so may not be advisable as a chronic medication. Medications like baclofen or tizanidine may be advisable in someone who has spasticity. That's a little bit different. Um, but moving on to their renal considerations, baclofen is excreted primarily as unchanged drug by the kidney. And there is no dosage adjustments needed until they get to about 80 and less creatinine clearance. Um, and then there are some recommendations whether or not they're on dialysis. 
Um, but it is recommended to maybe consider another medication if they are on dialysis due to the potential for side effects and it being removed by dialysis. Soma, my absolute favorite drug. Just kidding. Um, why should we even bother talking about that? You shouldn't be using it anyway. <laughs> um, there's no dosage adjustments um, with chlorzoxazone. Um, diazepam is excreted in the urine. Um, some of these we don't have specific dosage recommendations, um, but it is important to consider starting at a low dose, slow titration, and monitoring for um, tolerability. Metaxalone is contraindicated in significant renal impairment. Caution um, with methocarbamol um, and tizanidine um, does have reduced doses with a creatinine clearance less than 25. So those are all listed here because who can remember all of these? I obviously can at this point, maybe in another five years. Um, but now I, we all have our cheat sheet. The next class of medications is antidepressants. So I actually tried doing quite a bit of reading, looking at tricyclic antidepressants, and there are no specific renal dose adjustments provided, but there is some thought that there may be increased risk for side effects in this group of medication that is associated with quite a few side effects. So just keep that in mind. Other SNRIs, um, duloxetine, the cutoff for use is, um, you can't use it with a creatinine clearance less than 30. Um, there are dose adjustments with milnasopran and venlafaxine. Um, with those, and you can just monitor for tolerability. I tried to be inclusive of all of our gabapentinoid products, but I think I left out pregabalin controlled release. My apologies. <laughs> um, the main point here is that there are dosage adjustments recommended, and then all, the cutoff point is 60 milliliters per minute, and you'll notice changes in the dose and also the frequency of dosing. Um, there are differing recommendations related to the use of specific gabapentinoids in hemodialysis. Gabapentin and pregabalin have recommended supplemental doses. If you are going to dose the medication before dialysis, you can avoid that supplemental dose by just having them take it after their dialysis session. And then the other thing to point out with um, Gabapentin and Acrobil is that there are differing recommendations for restless legs versus post-herpetic neuralgia. Um, other anticonvulsants, um, Lamotrigine um, is partly removed by dialysis. We don't really have a lot of great information. Good thing with Levetiracetam, we have some solid um, dosing adjustments. Um, I actually do have a patient with chronic kidney disease I have on this medication and have to be mindful of his creatinine clearance and maximum dose. Um, oxcarbazepine, there is some recommendation in hemodialysis to use the immediate release versus the extended release formulation and some dosage adjustments there as well. So moving on to opioids, what opioids should we avoid in chronic kidney disease? Codeine, not recommended. It is renally cleared by about 90, about 90 percent, almost completely um, cleared renally. And there is a potential for the accumulation of metabolites. 
Meperidine, again, is not recommended due to the potential for the accumulation of neurotoxic metabolites. And similar with morphine, you can get accumulation of the morphine-3-glucuronide that can potentially be neurotoxic. My general rule of thumb is that I don't use morphine in patients with a creatinine clearance of less than 30. I've actually recently come across this, patient ex having side effects and issues with morphine. Um, first thing I went to look at, what's his creatinine clearance? Yeah, shouldn't have been on it in the first place. So wanting to switch to another medication. Tramadol, good option for moderate pain. It is not directly nephrotoxic, nephrotoxic but it is cleared renally. Um, the primary, the parent drug and the metabolite can accumulate in CKD. Um, and this can potentially increase the patient's risk for seizures um, and respiratory depression in the setting of uremia. And there are some dosage adjustments, so with advanced CKD going down to 100 milligrams twice a day, or if in hemodialysis, 50 milligrams twice a day. And I very commonly um, see patients not necessarily getting that dosage adjustment for their um, kidney function with tramadol. Next up are buprenorphine and fentanyl, and these are good options for use in chronic kidney disease. I've had a, a kind of a little grouping of patients that came to me around the same time having chronic kidney disease and had to make, had to determine their best options in terms of opioids. And for whatever reason, they both, buprenorphine seemed to be the best option for them. And it's always really weird because I end up seeing them on the same day. And I'm like, oh, it's like deja vu. It is hematically metabolized to norbuprenorphine that has a weak effect. It is renally cleared by 30%. Um, it is considered safe for advanced to CKD. There's no dosage adjustments needed, and there's um, limited role potential that it would be dialyzed, so it's not dialyzed. Um, in these patients, um, trying to remember, I think they were on lower doses of opioids, so they weren't kind of at that opioid tolerance stage for me to consider using fentanyl. If I had to kind of decide between the two which one I would want to go with, it probably most of the time buprenorphine would win. Um, but with fentanyl, it is metabolized by CYP3A4 to an inactive metabolite. 75% is eliminated in the urine. Um, there is some questionable impact of how it might interfere with dialysis and binding to the dialysis filter, but it is not dialyzed. Hydromorphone goes through phase two metabolism to active hydromorphone 3-glucuronide, which is neurotoxic and can accumulate in stage four or five. And you'll notice here, um, depending on their creatinine clearance, their exposure to a four milligram dose can double or even triple. So we need to be careful depending on where they are and making sure we make a dose reduction in those patients based on the severity of their renal disease. And it is removed 50% in dialysis. So that means that um, if it was stopped abruptly that um, could lead to the accumulation of that neurotoxic metabolite. Um, and 50% being removed, um, hopefully withdrawal would not occur. So methadone, methadone is another option for patients in chronic kidney disease. Cannot remember the last time that I actually initiated someone on methadone. Um, 
It has minimal accumulation, hepatic metabolism, and elimination. About 20% is eliminated by the kidneys, but the interesting thing is that there is some compensation through the biliary fecal elimination to compensate for um, reduced kidney function. No dosage adjustments are needed. It's not dialyzed. And essentially, it has similar kinetics in healthy patients versus those with chronic kidney disease. So what that means is it's um, a tricky and potentially dangerous drug in normal patients. Um, So that kind of still applies in patients with chronic kidney disease. It really should be reserved for pain specialists or those who are knowledgeable about its use. Oxycodone, considered a kind of a second line option. Um, It does get metabolized by some CYP enzymes. It is likely dialyzable. Um, and the, there is potential for, for increases in concentrations of the parent and metabolites in renal failure. So what we need to do is be more cautious upon initiation, use a low dose, monitor closely, and titrate slowly. Oxymorphone um, is excreted in the urine and the bioavailability increases about 65% in renal dysfunction and is likely dialyzable. So similar things, we need to be careful with the dose that we're starting them on, um, probably a lower dose than typical, um, consider adjustments in the frequency of dose, and monitor closely and um, titrate carefully. Here are just some information about the physical chemical characteristics of opioids. I won't bore you with that, um, but this kind of helps you determine their dialyzability. So swinging back to our patient case, what, what could we consider? Well, if she's tolerating venlafaxine, we could consider a dose increase. Um, we could trial pregabalin with consideration for the appropriate renally adjusted dose. In terms of opioid options, um, what opioids may have a potential leg up for the use in neuropathic pain? Buprenorphine, methadone, or tepentadol. Um, what are the preferred opioids in chronic kidney disease? buprenorphine, fentanyl, and methadone. So I would likely, in this patient, initiate with buprenorphine. And with that, I'll hand it over to Abby. Thanks, Courtney. Okay, can you hear me okay? All right, perfect. So we're gonna take it home so we can all get out, go to the poster session, and then enjoy um, a night in Vegas, right? So let's start the hepatic dysfunction section again with another patient case. So this is a 63-year-old male with failed back surgery or failed back surgery syndrome and peripheral neuropathy. So he has severe hepatic impairment with cirrhosis. He's failed non-pharmacological approaches and is inquiring about medication options to help with his pain. So kind of keep him in mind as we go through these next few slides. So in terms of pharmacokinetics and the impact that liver dysfunction has, there are some overlap um, with CKD in that there's changes in the protein levels and binding, as Courtney's already gone over, that can um, affect the the drug levels and their toxicity. Edema and ascites can affect a patient's volume of distribution. Hepatorenal syndrome can happen. So believe it or not, patients with... um, chronic liver disease or um, cirrhosis can actually end up having acute uh, kidney failure or CKD as well. So not only in these patients are you having to worry about adjusting their doses of medications for their liver, but then you also have to think about their kidneys as well. Um, So that's something to be on the lookout for. A reduction in overall metabolism, so there is less hepatic blood flow, and then depending on the... um, 
extraction ratio, the drugs may be more or less affected by the decrease in the blood flow. So if it's a higher extraction ratio, then they're more likely to be affected by the decrease in the blood flow versus a lower extraction ratio is more likely to be affected by the protein binding. And then the portosystemic shunting, um, again, affects the ex- hepatic extraction ratios, and a reduced overall first-pass metabolism leads to an increased bioavailability of the medications, and then fewer hepatocytes are overall available to process and metabolize the medications. Phase one metabolism is more impacted in liver dysfunction compared to phase two metabolism because of the hypoxia that occurs with the shunting. So CYP enzymes are impacted. Uh, mild dysfunction, it depends on the CYP enzyme versus in moderate to severe dysfunction, all of the CYP enzymes are typically impacted. And the type of hepatic disease can also play a role as well. Phase two metabolism is with the conjugating enzymes, so that's less impacted by, lever, by liver dysfunction, and glucuronidation is also less impacted. Now, what makes liver dysfunction tricky compared to CKD is that in renal function, right, we have the creatinine clearance, we have our little formulas or calculations, it gives us a number and we kind of have an idea of how, of how the drug is eliminated and, and that type of thing. But we don't have that same thing in liver dysfunction. So there is the child Pew score and there is the model for end-stage liver disease or the MELD scores, but this really looks at overall mortality. It's not really looking at the functional status of the liver itself and how much is cleared or not cleared. So in general terms, uh, the higher the child Pew score or the higher the MELD score, typically the lower the dose of the medication is that you're going to want to start with and dose it less frequently initially and then slowly or gradually titrate. But unfortunately in liver disease, we just don't have that same kind of creatinine clearance that we do in liver, fun- liver um, or I'm sorry, kidney function. So acetaminophen is also going to be a drug of choice in liver dysfunction, which I feel like kind of goes against what most people might think um, initially. So acetaminophen is metabolized to a couple different things. So a glucuronide metabolite, which is non-toxic, NAPQI, which can be toxic, and we'll talk about when you need to worry about that, and then a sulfate metabolite, which is non-toxic. And um, specifically in patients, so the toxic pathway is the less common or smaller pathway, but NAPQI is conjugated with glutathione, and when glutathione drops below 70% depletion, that's when the risk for hepatic toxicity increases. So patients where you may want to revisit or revise or reconsider using acetaminophen overall would be those with malnutrition, uh, chronic illness, or chronic alcohol intake. And what would acetaminophen toxicity look like? So uh, if initially within the first few hours, it would be nonspecific symptoms like nausea, vomiting, and malaise. Within 24 to 72 hours, it, they develop right, right upper quadrant tenderness. Within three to four days, they have uh, the fulminant hepatic failure with encephalopathy, coagulopathy, and multi-organ failure. And then typically by day five, their symptoms either start to improve or they go into multi-organ failure and death. So even though it's an over-the-counter medication and available, you still have to be very careful with its use. So in chronic liver disease patients, how would you want to use acetaminophen? So overall, the recommendation is to limit it to 3,000 milligrams per day on a chronic basis. Um, 4,000 milligrams per day may be okay for a short-term use. But overall, you want to limit it to 2,000 milligrams per day in patients with alcohol consumption. I would typically still just avoid it overall, especially if they have cirrhosis, because then you know that they've um, 
they are serious about alcohol intake. But in cirrhosis, cirrhotic patients, not drinking alcohol, limiting it to 2,000 milligrams per day is typically safe and appropriate. And we want to use acetaminophen because kind of like in CKD, NSAIDs are really just not a good idea with liver um, impairment. And that's because, especially in cirrhosis, the patient's already at risk for so many other adverse events that NSAIDs can actually potentiate or worsen. So NSAIDs can contribute to hypertension, and patients with cirrhosis are already at risk for portal hypertension. Esophageal varices increase the risk of bleeding, and NSAIDs, as we know, also increase the risk of bleeding overall. Renal insufficiency, so again, they can develop that hepatorenal syndrome, and as Courtney mentioned, um, NSAIDs can affect the prostaglandins, and that can affect renal perfusion and renal function overall. And in patients with reduced albumin, they have increased free levels of NSAIDs, which can then increase the risk for adverse events as well. And NSAIDs themselves can actually um, produce or result in liver injury as well. In mild to moderate dysfunction, it may be appropriate to use normal doses of ibuprofen, etotalac, or diclofenac, but you would want to avoid or dose reduce naproxen, celecoxib, and I don't know what happened to our slides in this presentation. Our last presentation was okay, but that box I can't read. <laughs> um, but you would want to avoid them, the NSAID class in general, in patients with cirrhosis. And again, maybe use the topical, the topical NSAID option instead of a medic, an NSAID by mouth. Uh, TCAs, so they are highly protein-bound and do have significant first-pass metabolism. Um, they are metabolized by CYP2D6, and accumulation is potentially possible. However, they're not contraindicated for use in liver impairment. The recommendation is to really start low and go slow, and they'd probably need lower maintenance doses overall. And it's actually recommended to prophylactically treat the patient to prevent constipation because constipation developing in a liver disease patient can result in encephalopathy, which is not good. Um, and nortriptyline and disipramine would be the TCAs that they would recommend um, to start with. In terms of SNRIs, so kind of like with CKD, um, venlafaxine would be the preferred SNRI over duloxetine. So duloxetine, there's been cases of hepatotoxicity with patients with pre-existing liver um, dysfunction or disease. So the recommendation per the package insert is to avoid it in patients with chronic liver disease or chronic alcohol use. So venlafaxine can still be used, um, but dose adjustments are required, and it's thought potentially that even desvenlafaxine may be better tolerated than venlafaxine itself. In terms of anticonvulsants, um, the go-to ones, which is easy enough to remember, are the gabapentinoids. So gabapentin, and then the next slide, pregabalin, you'll see there's no adjustments required. However, I do want to point out that there have been cases reported of pregabalin causing hepatotoxicity, cases of it, so that would be something to potentially consider um, in this patient population. The other um, anticonvulsants are listed there for your reference that are more like second or third line, but I would start with a gabapentinoid first line. And then bringing it back to the skeletal muscle relaxants, again, we typically don't recommend chronic use of these medications for most patients, um, but your go-tos would probably be baclofen because no dose adjustment is needed, or methocarbamol. There's no specific adjustments provided, but you would just want to use caution in your patients with cirrhosis overall. Another common one that's used is cyclobenzaprine, and they recommend starting it at 5 milligrams per dose and then titrate slowly and kind of extend that dosing interval out as well. And it's not recommended overall in moderate to severe hepatic impairment. 
And then tizanidine itself can also result in hepatotoxicity, so something to keep in mind in this patient population. But you could still technically use tizanidine. They just recommend rather than increasing the dosing frequency, increasing the dose itself. When it comes to opioids and liver dysfunction, kind of like with uh, the CKD, so codeine and tramadol, they're metabolized by CYP2D6 to the active metabolite. So if the CYP enzymes are adversely impacted by the liver disease, then the patient's not gonna get as good of an analgesic response. So they're not gonna, um, codeine's not typically recommended. Tramadol, you can still use it. The dosage adjustment for a patient with cirrhosis is listed there at 50 milligrams every 12 hours. Tepentadol is another good option in neuropathic pain. However, uh, in mild dysfunction, you don't have to worry about any dose adjustments. The dose adjustment for moderate impairment is listed there, but in patients with severe liver disease, it's not recommended. Overall, in general, in liver dysfunction patients, it's really recommended to avoid the long-acting or extended-release opioids just because those have a higher risk for adverse effects, and it's a little bit harder to undo those compared to the immediate-release opioids. Um, hydrocodone and oxycodone are potential options. Hydrocodone may have decreased clearance and a longer half-life and greater bioavailability. Can you hear me? Cutting in and out. Um, severe liver disease reduce the initial dose by 50%, and then they may require less frequent dosing. And then in oxycodone, less formation of the active metabolite could potentially mean less analgesic benefit overall. Um, but you could initiate it at a lower dose and then titrate a little bit more slowly. And then in severe liver disease or cirrhosis, you would want to extend the dosing interval and reduce the initial dose by 30 to 50%. So overall, it's just kind of being very cautious and going slow, um, which can be challenging in these patients because they may get a little bit impatient or frustrated. Um, but again, just kind of explaining to them everything that's going on and how co complicated things can be given their um, disease states may bring them to a little bit better understanding because my, my experience is that they tend to kind of self-adjust doses or kind of do their own thing and then come back to you, you know, after their next follow-up appointment and say, oh, this is really working for me. And, but then you obviously have concerns about their safety or bad things happening. Morphine and hydromorphone, so they're kind of uh, similar in that they both have significant first-pass metabolism, which is reduced in hepatic impairment. They're both metabolized through glucuronidation, um, and the metabolism can be reduced in hepatic impairment, res resulting in an increased half-life and a decreased clearance. So again, in mild to moderate hepatic impairment, you would reduce the initial dose and then extend the dosing interval by one and a half to two times um, and reducing the dose overall in those with cirrhosis. And again, in hepatorenal syndrome, you would want to avoid both of these medications because of the kidney dysfunction and the risk for accumulating of the um, toxic metabolites. Buprenorphine. Um, so it's thought that there's some pharmacokinetic changes that take place, but clinically speaking, how much of a significant impact that would have on the patient is not necessarily clear. Um, fentanyl is a high extraction ratio medication and it's highly protein bound. Um, and it could have potential prolonged half-life with continuous infusions, um, but it's not a contraindicated or medication you can't necessarily use. And then methadone, kind of like Courtney already alluded to, it has its own intricacies and individual patient nuances, so it's not contraindicated, but it should be really left to the specialist to use methadone. Um, I had a, a chronic liver disease patient with cirrhosis that was on methadone, and it was working really rather well, um, but then he kind of had a, um, 
we're, it's not really clear if he had like, uh, was it related to his methadone or was it related to encephalopathy, but because of that we decided that it was best to rotate him to an oxycodone regimen just because um, that's a little bit more clean cut, if that makes sense. So thinking back to our patient case, um, so he, he's an opioid naive patient, he's not even on any medications overall, but if you had to think about it from a non-opioid standpoint, you would want to avoid carbamazepine, avoid codeine, avoid duloxetine or the NSAIDs, maybe perhaps a topical NSAID. Non-opioids you could use would be acetaminophen, but in no greater than 2,000 milligrams per day, and then a gabapentinoid through either gabapentin or pregabalin. And if you had to use an opioid, um, tramadol would potentially be a good option at 50 milligrams every 12 hours, or potentially hydrocodone or oxycodone, but it started at a lower dose with less frequent dosing. So not necessarily something six times a day or even four times a day, but starting maybe with every 12 hours or every eight hours. Um, so in conclusion, both on the kidney side and the liver side, there are various different things to consider. With the kidneys, you're looking at the kidney disease itself as well as the dialysis process you have to consider versus the liver disease itself. You're just looking at the liver disease and the impact it can have on metabolism and drug excretion. So with that, I'm going to go into our learning assessment questions. So which of these drugs is most likely to be removed by dialysis? Who says A? This is like a daunting question for me to even look at. B, C, okay, or D? Okay, so the answer would be D. Um, a 67-year-old female with lumbar spinal stenosis and CKD stage 3 who's not a surgical candidate. She failed non-pharmacological and non-opioid options, so what opioid is best? So who says morphine? We don't want to use morphine in a CKD patient usually. Buprenorphine? Okay, good. So the patient is opioid naive, so you wouldn't have to worry about lowering her opioid dose or anything like that before initiating buprenorphine. What about fentanyl patch? So not appropriate. It's potentially an option down the road if needed, but because the patient's not opioid tolerant, it wouldn't be appropriate in this case. And then what about long-acting oxycodone? Right, not as good of an option, most likely, as the buprenorphine patch. And also because it's a long-acting opioid, you, tend to, you wouldn't really want to do that in an opioid-naive patient. And then last but not least, what non-opioid is best for a patient with diabetic peripheral neuropathy with cirrhosis? So who says gabapentin? A. Yes, good job. B, nortriptyline? Potentially an option, but is it the cleanest cut? Not necessarily. C, amitriptyline? And then what about D, duloxetine? No go, exactly. Awesome. Well, thank you guys for staying, hanging around to the last presentation. And